0: We'll be Seven, verse fifty-four, uh, and just to recap what we because we went through really quickly um, his exposition of um, his explanation, his defense on uh, on what he believes in and what he what was he I'm talking about of course is Stephen. We're introduced to a new guy, a new character, a fellow named Stephen. We we're gonna be, we met him last week and we're going to say goodbye to him this week. Um, and yeah, I know it's pretty sad, isn't it? Uh, it is, it's actually, I, I find this, this this portion of scripture quite difficult, um, but yet beautiful. It's one of those kind of mixed, I couldn't think, I spent literally 20 minutes trying to think of a way to describe this portion of scripture and I couldn't find a word because it's just mixed feelings. I guess that's the only way I can describe it is mixed feelings. But so last week, um, he was charged, well first of all, we saw he's a man who was called to serve the church. He was a wise man, he was a powerful man, he was full of faith. In the spirit of God. But he was um, accused. And he brought before the Sanhedrin. uh, Called a a blasphemer. That's what they called a blasphemer. But he wasn't. He only spoke the truth. It was historical truth. It was accepted truth. You know it wasn't just subjective truth. Like this is how I see it. So therefore it's true to me. He actually spoke what was actually accepted Amongst the people as truth. And that was basically what we uncovered last week. I know we were through quite quickly, but basically what he said is it's just the history of what has happened in Israel. God's chosen faithful people, but they've been all been basically persecuted, ignored, and rejected by the people of Israel. So therefore, there's been those who are faithful and obedient to God. In the list, you remember, there's Abraham and there's Joseph and there was Moses. And we're going to look at that list in just a moment. So there are those who are faithful and obedient to God. But historically, they have been rejected and persecuted by those who are faithless and disobedient towards God. And the Sanhedrin represents the faithless, disobedient ones. So this this message was not... <laughs> was, not going to turn, was not going to turn out well for him. This is not how you make friends with the Sanhedrin, by telling the truth. Next slide, please. So, again, Stephen, he, I believe, is in a line of faithful and persecuted, which we see, in, and we also see it in Hebrews 11, you know, a nice list of people who are faithful, but some of which were persecuted harshly and even killed for their faith, their faithfulness. So, again, he looked in this, in this sermon this, that, we, that he gave us last week. It was a long, long ago, we have a fellow named Abraham. And God, he called out to Abraham. And Abraham relied on the promises God gave him. Then we also see Joseph, who trusted in God. And he was persecuted by his brothers. You know, the ones who were supposed to be his care for him and love him. They rather sold him to slavery. However, God turned this evil into good. When Joseph saved his family. As you know the story. Joseph rose to power. He was wise with, you, politically and, and economically. And he was a powerful steward in the land of Egypt. And he saved Egypt. And consequently he saved his own people. His brothers who ironically enough wanted him dead. And then we have Moses who was meant to be dead as a child. Mirror how Satan inspired the Pharaoh to kill all the young children of, of, of Egypt, because he wanted to wipe out that lineage, that promise from Ab- that God gave to Abraham, and that would be Moses. But Moses survived it. God saved him. But yet Moses, chosen by God, was still rejected by his brethren when he tried to help. He then goes on to deliver the people from Egypt. However, as we know from Scripture, they constantly complained against Moses, constantly complained against God, griped, complained, And immediately turned to idol worship, disobedience, faithlessness. However, God still fulfilled his promise and gave the people the land that he promised. You see, God wanted to be with his people. But they constantly rejected him. And they also rejected Jesus, the son of God that Moses promised a long ago. That's my recapping. That's my summary of what Stephen was basically talking about last week in that sermon. Next slide, please. And so it says in verse 40, or 54, rather, where we are in Acts 7, when the members of Sanhedrin heard this, heard this message I just recapped, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. Just Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, this is important. Remember Jesus said that there's going to be a time where you're going to be brought up forward to defend your faith. But don't, don't worry, the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say. That's what it says in Luke twelve twelve. Jesus said, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what needs to be said. However, what we see here is the Holy Spirit's doing a little bit more for Stephen because he needs a little bit more. The Holy Spirit already gave him the words to say, but now he has to give him courage. Courage to face his persecutors. So he's full of spirit. He looked up to heaven, and he saw the glory of God, and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now it's interesting because every time we see Jesus on the right hand of God, he's usually sitting. It's a place where he sits at the right hand of God. This is the only time in Scripture we see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And, the, and I'm, I, don't know if I'm, I don't know if I'm reading into it, but it looks to me like he's up off his throne, calling Stephen home. You know what I'm saying? He's not just sitting there being in a place of authority. He is in authority, but he's active. And he's saying, come, Stephen, come come be with me. Your, your, Your job on earth is done. And so Stephen says, look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So there is the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now this statement if that sermon he just gave wasn't going to kill him, this statement certainly would because of the implications, the heavy, heavy duty implications of these words. It's a direct reference from Daniel and Psalm. Daniel 7 13 14 says this, and my vision continued that night. This is Daniel speaking about his prophecy, his prophetic vision. I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one. That's God. And was led into his presence. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world. So that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. You see, the Sanhedrin people knew about this prophecy. And they understand that when he's saying the son of man, he's talking about this son of man of authority, of rulership. Basically, Jesus is the chief. Sanhedrin isn't. So this is offensive. Jesus, the man who you killed, is the son of God that we're waiting for, the one who will be given all authority, honor, who's sovereign over all nations. Yes, even you, Mr. and Mrs. Sanhedrin. Okay, it's Mr. Sanhedrin or Misters because there's no woman allowed. However... This is the man, this is Jesus Christ, who every race and nation and language will obey. He's the authority. He's the ultimate rule. And his rule isn't temporal. It's eternal. never ends. So this is a dagger. This is a shot to the heart to the Sanhedrin. And mix this with Psalm 110, verse 1. It says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit in the place of honor. At my right hand, until I humble your enemies. <laughs> Think about the implication. Where is Jesus sitting? Lord said to my Lord, sit. This again is a prophetic mission. This is connected to the Son of Man. And he's connecting it rightly here. At the right hand of God sits the Lord. And what is God in his power doing? Humbling his enemies. So you can see in their mind, whoa, 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 whoa. Who's humbling whose enemies? Because they have already identified themselves rightfully as the enemies of Christ. Because they've, they've rejected him. They've turned against him. So if they've killed the Jesus, the one sent by God, which have already is offensive, and now they're enemies, they're, they're, they have offended God. And they will be humbled. Next slide, please. So, and here's another thing to think about. So if people now have access to God through Jesus, okay? He's seeing Jesus. He's engaging with Jesus. Jesus is calling him. If people no longer have access, or people now have access to God through Jesus, that means there's no longer any need for the things that the Sanhedrin stand for, like temples and priests. And if you remember, we already talked about this um, last week. Remember how it says earlier in in chapter 6 how many people, many of the priests were actually turning to Christ, so many of the priests, many of those people who are operating within that, that system, have already turned to Jesus. Because they realize that Jesus is that true mediator. He's the true great high priest. There's no need for the system. But this system is what the Sanhedrin stands for. So there's no need for the temple, no need for priests. There's no need for the Sanhedrin. So basically what he's saying, and what he's implying, is that there's no need for the Sanhedrin. That they're, they're done. So this is a great offense. And of course, First Timothy 2.5 agrees with this fact. For there is only one God, and there's one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. So, Israel was guilty. The law was temporary. The temple must be done away with. That is what Stephen's standing for. Next slide, please. So we say goodbye to Stephen at this point, but we will see him again in heaven. And this is kind of, like I said, this is, I got mixed feelings here. This is quite, quite out there. Because we can think, we're going to see Stephen in heaven someday, you know? And, and I would like to, you know, see what he looks like, and, you know, and, and talk to him. And like, what, what went through your mind, you know? What happened? What's going on? You know, what's the deal here? You know, I mean, and think, think about all the other people who have fallen who you know, have passed away, who have died, who have moved on from this temporal place to the eternal place that we're looking for, we call home, you know? But here he is. Stephen, no, oh, I think I know <laughs> So, verse 57 says this. At this, they this is Sanhedrin, right? They're just, they cover their ears and they start yelling at the top of their voices. Now, there's a Greek word for this. It's na-na-na-na-na-na, I can't hear you, a kiss. I think, I, think, I, think, I, think that's, I think that's Greek. I'm not sure. It might be Latin. <laughs> na-na-na-na-na-na, nah, I can't hear you, a kiss. So basically it's translated or it's defined as the ultimate toddler temper tantrum. <laughs> that's the strict, strict definition of this. And the thing is, it's funny, but it's also really ignorant, isn't it? ah, God, and they start shouting. I mean, come on. Imagine going into court and defending yourself, and then the judge and the jury start plugging their ears and shouting at the top of the lung and stamping their feet and say, ah. It's just, it's just a big, fat temper tantrum. And the thing is, there will come a time where people will stop reasoning. They'll stop thinking. They'll stop arguing rightly, and they'll just attack. I hate to say it, but we're living in a kind of society, I think, now. I remember 20, 30 years ago when I first started learning theology and apologetics, and I used to love it. I used to love to have the opportunity to, 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 to stand up, to defend my faith reasonably. When I came to Scotland, I remember me and a couple of my buddies, Ross and Dan, we would sit and talk, read books about, about you know, academics, and even popular-level people encountering and engaging with these topics Reasonably. God versus atheism, you know, the the debate, you know, the, we call the the new atheist, you know, which comes from that Dawkins group and those popularizers. And the thing is, there was a time where we could actually reason and argue and debate, but I think we're starting to see that things are changing now where people have, where certain people are, are done arguing. They don't want to reason anymore. They just want to hit their hand against the table. They want to just take over I'm, I'm done arguing. I'm done. the thing is, we've started to see that even with the whole Dawkins people. Like, well, if Dawkins says it, I believe it, so I don't need to argue. But but don't you realize even his buddies, his peers, who are atheistic, says his work's cr- rubbish. Don't you realize that it's just, it's just a popularizing book, this God delusion. It, it's not really good philosophy. And even like other, it's just, and if you look at the, f- like the the social media stuff, which I hate so much, the Facebook and the this and the that and everything else. People aren't really interested in arguing rightly and reasoning intellectually. They just want you to shut up with your Jesus Christ so they can be who they want to be and do what they want to do. And they're actually influencing and getting into office and politics and making decisions for our lives and our children's lives. You know, things that come into law quickly. I'm not going to go into the whole name person thing, but I think that's a part of it. I want someone to be in control over how you raise your child. What's that all about? Where's, where's the voting? Where's the decision-making on that? You know? I think we're getting to a point where the arguing, the fighting, I believe there's going to be a time where we're going to stand in court and they're going to say, I don't care, are you Christian or you're not Christian? Well, if you're Christian and you're a bad person, you're going to be charged as such. I believe the scriptures is open to that. And it's going to be on the grounds of not reason, not logic, but on the grounds of we don't like you people. Simple as that. Nah, 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 nah. Fingers in the ears, stamping the feet. It's a scary thought. But the reality is that's how people are. That's, that's the fallen nature of humanity. They don't want to hear. They don't want to reason. They don't want to repent. They want to keep things as it is. So they rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses lay their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. So now we're introduced to a new fella, a fella named Saul. A lot of you already know who Saul is. But I'm gonna I'm not gonna I'm not gonna just let it out just now. Because I wanna embrace him as we're looking at Acts. Because I, I wanna see him grow as a man. I wanna see him change. I wanna see him develop and his story develop. So all we see now is this fella named Saul. Saul means I think desired in Hebrew. It's a very Hebrew, very Jewish name. Um, Saul. Desired. Here's that man, theologian, you know, part of the Pharisees, you know. An up-and-coming type of guy, you know. He's like the, he's like the Roy McEnroy of, of, of theology, you know. <laughs> here he is. I think he's a, actually been done. So anyways. So then you have, so, so here he is. And, he, and they're laying their coats. So he's in agreement. He's like, yes, I'm a part of this. Give me your stuff and go stone him. So the, while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. I love this Christ-like attitude. This is, this is very similar to what Christ did when he was killed. Don't hold their sins against him. This is a part of your will, God. Save these people. Turn them from their sin. Change them. Rescue them. This is the heart of Christ, and Stephen has it for sure. So he falls to his knees. He cries as he's dying, Lord, don't, don't hold the sin against them. And then when he said this, he fell asleep which is another way of saying he's died. He passed away. And for the Christian, in a sense, this body doesn't die and end. It just kind of goes into a, a new state or a new place. So he didn't go away. He didn't die. His life didn't finish. He's, he's, he's in heaven with God. To be absent of the body, it says in the scriptures, is to be present with the Lord. And that's Stephen. That's why I say earlier, I said, I can't wait to see him. Because he's just, he just, at that moment, he just, his body gave out. But his soul's alive. His spirit's alive. And I will see him in heaven. He will be resurrected with all of us. In the great day of resurrection. And here we have Saul again. Approving of this killing. In um, the word these he's approved here. It's strictly. Um, or it can be defined as. To be pleased together. To approve together. It's like a coin. It's like a grouping. It's like a, I'm a part of this. It's not a passive, well, it's just you, but I'm just kind of, I'm just kind of observing it from a distance. It's kind of like, oh, if you want kind of mentality. It's not like that. This is, har- in fact, it's strictly translated in hearty agreement. So it's an aggressive, yes, please do. Yes, I'm fired up. Yes, I want to see this man die. He is a heretic, he is a blasphemer. Kill this man. That's what we see going on here. And so in verse 2, or continuing verse 1 of Acts 8, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all, except the apostles, were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. This is interesting. This is very interesting what we see here. So great persecution from that day breaks out. And we can kind of see, oh, Satan, what do you like? Persecuting the church, messing everything up. But you know what? I don't think that's happening here. I don't think I don't think anything's being messed up. I think Jesus even said, because when he said, go out and preach the gospel, starting in Jerusalem, but then branching out. Is that what he said? Well, this is what we see here: the branching out. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul, again, here we have Saul, a contrast of Stephen. Godly men bearing Stephen, but you have a conscience of Saul, began to destroy the church. So, again, what Satan meant for evil, the destruction of the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women put them into prison. This is what Satan wants. He wants to bring the end to the church. Like with Moses, he wanted to bring the end of God's promises. And, and even with a similar emphasis we see with Christ when he was born, Satan wanted to wipe out that lineage of Christ. He wanted to wipe out Christ Himself. But what Satan meant intends for evil, God usually twists and turns to use it for good. Again, the Joseph situation. That's actually where that term comes from with Joseph. How his brothers did evil and intended evil upon him when they sold him to slavery. But God changed it and used it for good when Joseph was able to rescue the people of Israel. This is what God does. And look at the consequence in verse 4. Those who have been scattered, so they're persecuted, they're forced to scatter, preach the word wherever they went. So that's why I call this persecution and dispersion. Because it's just, okay guys, it's time to get out there. And what if this didn't happen? What if the persecution didn't happen? Again, Satan intended to discourage, to frighten and even hurt or kill the church. So that it will fail. But... As we've seen time and time again, God used what was meant for evil to do great things. If the church in Jerusalem remained nice and cozy, you know, a safe and lovely place with lovely people, and they may have never gone out to do the mission they were supposed to do. Think about that. Ah, you know, we're cool. This is nice, nice place to meet. We're in Jerusalem, the heart of God's promise. You know, here we are. We don't really need to get out there, or we'll do it eventually, you know. God said, Now's the time. And He used persecution to disperse the gospel. And here we see it with a new fellow we're meeting. And we see it immediately happening. And here's an excellent example of how this dispersion, this persecution that led to dispersion, ultimately led for the gospel to go out. We see this great evangelist, a new person. So we've met Stephen. We said bye to Stephen. We have Saul now introduced. And now we have a new fella. His name is Philip. The next slide, please. In verse 5, Philip, this guy's amazing. We're going to see him for a couple weeks. We're going to see him today, and we're going to see him next week. Philip, he went down to a city in Samaria. Again, Samaria, you know, that he's away from Jerusalem. He's up and north and out. He's far away, and he's in a place that's kind of undesirable for those who are from Judea. Samaria, the mixed people, you know. And he proclaimed the message there. So, you see, now he's not in Jerusalem. He has to go away. He's away. But what is he doing? He's in a different place. He's doing what Jesus says. He's in the surrounding areas now, preaching the gospel in the city of Samaria, or in a city in Samaria. When the crowds heard Philip, they saw the signs he performed. They all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many were paralyzed, or lame, or healed. So there was great joy in the city. Now we've already talked a lot about the natures and the kinds of healing. So I'm not going to dwell there anymore because we should already know kind of how to categorize this, these these spiritual healings in light of the gospel, in light of, you know, contemporary issues of healings and whatnot. So I'm going to move on from there today and look at what this man Philip was doing. He was doing the work of the ministry. He was healing people. He was preaching the name of Jesus Christ. And what happened? Well, we'll see right here that, that there was a result. That God, again, was bringing people to salvation. In verse 9, now for some time a man named Simon. Oh, we have another person, I forgot. Another guy we're introduced to. So we have Philip, and we also have this fellow named Simon. We're going to talk more about Simon. It's almost like, it's interesting because we're going to see some compare and contrast between Philip and Simon. And we're going to do more of that next week. So this week we're going to be introduced to them. But next week we're going to look at Philip and Simon, kind of like a comparison side by side. So we see Philip forced out of Jerusalem into a city in Samaria, preaching the gospel, doing genuine, okay? Notice that, guys. In 7 and 8, we see genuine works of God, genuine works of the Holy Spirit. But we have Simon, who is kind of a trickster, and, you know, an, an illusionist, like kind of like that David Blaine fellow or, you know, kind of Houdini, you know, you know the kind of tricksters, amaze people, attract people, but tr- trickery, it's not genuine, it's trickery. And that's what Simon, that's, that's who he was before he met Christ. He's got a, a road ahead of him. <laughs> but we'll deal with that later. But now we're introduced to him. Simon, he had practiced sorcery or magic. That's what we're for sorcery. It's magic in a city, trickery, a magician, and amazed all the people of Samaria. He boasted that he was someone great. So he was very charismatic. You know, kind of like how you'd imagine like someone like Houdini or you know, contemporary magicians. You know, they're charismatic. They they allure people through charm and trickery. So that's how he goes, oh, look at me. Oh, he's amazing. So he, he was a showman. He was a showman. And people loved him. They followed him because he was amazing. He did really good tricks. People liked it. He boasted he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is rightly called the great power of God. That was his title. Simon, the great. Power of God, you know. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time. See, part of that whole attraction of Jesus was, ooh, was, let's see what he's up to. It's, kind of, you know, it's the entertainment. But you know that a multitude followed Jesus to be entertained, but only a few stayed to remain as disciples. But Simon had the same kind of turnout, if you will, up in Samaria. Oh, look at this guy. He's amazing. He's got personalities, character, and man, he does amazing tricks. Well, they call it magic. But when they believed, okay, so here's the message going out. They hear the message of Philip and they start to believe when he's proclaiming this good news, the great news of the gospel of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, which is what we're supposed to do. That's what they were supposed to do and what they're finally doing. They're spreading the gospel throughout the world. They were baptized. So all these people who used to follow Simon are now getting baptized, both men and women. And even Simon himself believed and was baptized. Okay, And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. Next slide, please. So we'll continue the story of Philip and Simon, the fake, the fraud, the heretic, next week to be continued. Let's pray.